Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. One of the most talked about essays we've featured on the Quillette website this summer was titled Think Cancel Culture Doesn't Exist? My Own Lived Experience Says Otherwise. The author, Colin Wright, is notable because he's not just a popular contributor to Quillette, he's our new managing editor. And he's also the only Quillette editor with a PhD in evolutionary biology, as it happens. Colin's path from academic and scientist to editor, writer, and gender gadfly is an interesting one. I spoke to him about it on this week's Quillette podcast, along with asking him a few questions about the way he got into science in the first place, the challenge to science from pseudoscience pushed by both the left and the right, and the reason why he refused to go in for activist claims that biological sex is a myth, and that we all exist on some kind of fuzzy man-woman spectrum. I spoke to Colin by Skype earlier this week. Here are excerpts from our conversation. One thing readers learned from reading your piece is that when you were younger and you started writing about science, you saw the main threat to the integrity of science was coming from conservatives. Is that right? Yeah. So I had written a lot in the past, not just on science specifically, but it's sort of the the meta conversation around science, what is science and distinguishing from non-science. And at the time when I was coming up, the biggest, I guess, attacks on evolution as I saw it are science in general coming from the conservative evangelical Christians when they were trying to sort of get evolution either not taught in the class or have creationism or intelligent design taught alongside or getting things put in textbooks of evolution saying, you know, evolution is just a theory, but there are many other theories. So that was how I initially came into criticizing these anti-science views. I came up in journalism through a newspaper called The National Post, which, especially in its early years, gave a forum, and many would argue gave a needed forum, to conservatives in Canada at a time when there weren't a lot of outlets for conservatives. But I do remember something that made me uneasy was this push for intelligent design, which was kind of like a creationism light do you remember that people were worrying that this was a backdoor for creationism? Yeah, I mean, I think the textbook they used to use was called Of Pandas and People. And there were specific instances where you would look in the textbook and where they had previously said something like creation science. You can see where they spliced in just cut and pasted design proponents instead of creation science. And there are these telltale marks throughout the textbook where you could see where they literally just went and cut and pasted intelligent design lingo and over the previous creation science lingo that they had previously been slinging. So yeah, it was just a natural sort of scientific sounding face on what was basically creationism. Now, you're a scientist, but a particular kind of scientist. Your specialty is evolutionary biology. For a lot of people, they come to this through books. I remember, I'm not an evolutionary biologist, but I read the Selfish Gene, that was a book that had a lot of influence on me. What was it that drew you to evolutionary biology as an interest? You know, it's hard to say. I just remember arguing with a lot of people. I've always been very pro-science, 
and there were a lot of people making claims that just sort of sounded wrong to me about how, you know, evolution is just one theory, but there's all these others. And I thought evolution was pretty solid. So I went and investigated a little bit more. I started reading books on the subject, mainly just to sort of have an answer to people who were coming at me with these either anti-evolution or anti-science points of view. And then I read more and more about evolution and sort of realized, oh, this is even more robust than I had previously even imagined it was. And I found myself in my free time just reading textbooks on evolutionary biology. And then I decided one day, this is a pretty fascinating subject. Maybe this is something I can do as a job, as a professional scientist. Before we get into some of the more modern political controversies around evolutionary biology, I want to dwell a little bit on the fact that evolutionary biology always feels like kind of a risque field of science because you're on your safest ground when you're saying, gee, like, why do giraffes have long necks? Why does this creature run fast? Why does this creature have a certain kind of reproductive strategy? But of course, as you know, tenets of evolutionary biology have been used by some of the most malignant actors in human history to justify all kinds of toxic tribalism. Of course, it was used by the Nazis in keeping with their distortions of the germ theory of medicine to slander entire races of people. Is there always in the back of your mind as an evolutionary biologist the knowledge that in the past people have used these theories or at least distortions of these theories for all kinds of horrible ideological ends? Yeah, I mean, to me it's not any different than any other scientific field. You can take some of these ideas, and you can take real evolutionary ideas and you can use them towards bad ends, or you can distort evolutionary ideas to use them as propaganda for bad ends. But it can go from either side of the political spectrum, too. So evolution is one of those fields where it gets pretty much equal hatred from the far right and the far left. On the far right, you have people who think we were created by God and we have these internal souls. And so they push back on evolutionary psychology and the origin of of humans in general. And then you have the far left people who are sort of against it because it talks about how there's innate differences between people and their variations in personalities and sex differences between males and females. Not everything's environmental. So you really just get equal hate from both sides. So in the past, I had always had to cover my right flank from those attacks. And now I found myself almost entirely covering my left flank from these similar attacks. When you did your PhD thesis, what was your specific area of study? I studied animal personalities, so inter-individual differences in behavior between individuals. And I looked at this at both an individual level and a group level. So just as no two individuals behave the same way over time and in different contexts, so too as no two groups behave the same way over time and context. So I would look at the collective personalities of entire colonies and either social spiders or paper wasps or ants. And I would look at how these differences in these colony level personality traits are linked to their survival and reproduction, how well they're performing certain tasks relevant to their survival, basically. So the specific focus you had in your own research, it sounds like that itself isn't relevant to some of the controversies we're about to discuss. Is that correct? Probably not too relevant. I know there's there's controversies around group selection, individual selection that my work maybe touched on sort of peripherally, but I didn't do any sort of the evolutionary psychology, at least not in humans. Evolutionary psychology is not controversial when you're talking about 
monkeys and spiders and whatever. But if you use those same things and you apply them to humans, then all of a sudden you can find yourself in hot water. So I never really entered the human realm, which is probably good for me, at least while I was in academia, because I got to avoid all the controversies you get with that. But uh, I guess I did do evolutionary psychology just in non-human animals. You've already told us that you had to look out for critiques from the right and also from the left. Do you remember the point where you saw a marked shift where it wasn't so much creationists who were critiquing what you saw as as mainstream evolutionary science, but that it was increasingly coming from the other side of the spectrum? Yeah, so in the early, I guess, mid-2000s, late-2000s, that's when sort of the creationist intelligent design people were going at evolution And I was nothing but encouraged by other scientists to really go at these people because, you know, there weren't any creationists and evangelicals in the universities, or if there were, there were very few. They lacked any sort of institutional power. And so I could freely criticize them without worrying about anything. And then it wasn't until I got to sort of grad school when I started having more professors follow me on social media and I would see these certain claims, the quote-unquote blank slate denialism where they're thinking that all differences in personality or behavior are due to environmental factors. And it was when I pushed back on these things using the same type of critiques I would use to criticize intelligent design or creationism that I would get this same sort of pushback, but from the left instead of the right this time. I want to go back to that phrase blank slate, because I remember when I joined the Quillette editorial staff in, I guess, late 2017, A lot of contributors and some of my colleagues at Quillette used this phrase very casually. Generally, they opposed it, this idea of the blank slate. But I had never heard this phrase before. For somebody, maybe now in 2020, who's never heard this term blank slate, could you describe what that means? Yeah, so there's sort of a strong and a soft form, I think, of blank slateism. The strong form would be that there are no inherent differences in the minds of males and females or people in general, any two individuals. For simplicity's sake, let's stick to the male and female thing, because it sounds like that's where it really took off. You're telling me that there are people who argue that the male and female brain are essentially identical? Yeah, So they'll sometimes admit that male and female brains appear different under scans because that's sort of what we see. But they would argue that all these differences in personality and even in structural wiring or anything, these are all due to socialization at some point, purely environmental factors. The way we socialize males and females from very young ages throughout their lives change their personalities, change the way their brains are wired. This is the strong blank slateism. Then there's sort of a softer version that will say that there's some differences between males and females that could be innate, which is a view that I hold. But there's usually a bias that prefers environmental explanations over innate ones. So if all else being equal, they just tend to prefer these. They require a lower threshold of evidence to affirm an environmental narrative than an innate one, when I'm of the opinion that there's really no reason to favor one or the other. You just need to sort of look at what the data is telling you. Given the extensive risks and period of incapacitation that accompany gestation and childbirth, it would seem fairly obvious that women and men would be evolutionarily encoded with different survival strategies. Are there any serious evolutionary biologists who endorse the strong form of blank slateism? You know, I don't think 
I've really met any that would be strong blank slate people who are practicing evolutionary biologists. I do run into a lot that have a very, very strong bias towards environmental explanations, and they might dismiss any sort of genetic or innate finding offhand, or at least suspend it until they can maybe gather environmental data comes in. So their threshold of evidence seems to be different depending on where the explanation is coming from, whether it's genetic or environmental. So I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit here, as is consistent with my role as Quillette's in-house liberal. I'm old enough to remember when people said, yeah, you know, it's just a fact of life that women aren't going to play video games because they tend to be violent. And men like video games because it reminds them of like throwing spears on the savanna and hunting food and all that stuff. And then video game manufacturers started making different kinds of games like Fortnite. And, you know, I have three daughters and two of them love Fortnite. And it's kind of caused me to reassess some of these views that I once had. And I think maybe the blank slatists, at least the soft form of blank slatists, they had a point about a lot of things that maybe once we casually attributed to human nature, but maybe it really was a vestige of culture. Is there value in putting the burden of proof on the other side to show that, yes, this is something about hardwiring, it's not about culture? Yeah, I think there's definitely a value in not immediately accepting any innate answer. And there's also an importance to realize that when biologists talk about innate differences, they're not talking about this strict dichotomy between male and female brains. They're not saying that if you're a female, you're going to behave this way. You're just determined to behave this way, whereas a male is determined to behave this way. They usually talk about overlapping distributions of individuals within a population. And if you're a female, you might just be more genetically predisposed to behave certain ways. But that doesn't mean you won't have some females that are behaving in ways that are more typically uh, associated with males, for instance. And then there's also this idea that science is never entirely settled on any certain issue, or at least it shouldn't be, you know, you shouldn't just like move it off the table. So if we have a, a discovery that comes up that says that there's these innate differences, that doesn't mean that the book should be closed forever. We just need to be able to continue having conversations about these findings. If new evidence comes along that shows that actually these old ideas we had about these being innate actually might have these environmental factors, we all need to be open to seeing these new arguments and new evidence to come in and revise our old beliefs. So I do think the bias towards environmental factors to some degree could be coming from a good place. At the end of the day, though, we just need to make sure that we're not removing things off the table just because we have an initial aversion to them. Your discussion of this spectrum is interesting because I think any person of common sense realizes that there's a huge spectrum of personalities among men and women. And I know plenty of women who have really stereotypical male personality traits. You know, I go to board game conventions and they're the ones who are really type A and super competitive. And I know men who have stereotypically female attributes. The spectrum does exist in regard to personality. And it's good that it exists. It creates this wonderful diversity of personalities among men and women. But one thing you've written about is this, I think, junk science extrapolation of that continuum, that spectrum, to the idea of biological sex. Could you explain when that started to happen? Yeah, so the exact moment it started to happen, I'm not sure. 
uh, at least from the outside. I know when I started noticing it first, uh, might have been around 2015 or so while I was in grad school, just on Facebook and listening to friends having discussions and then posting things like Anne Fausto Sterling's, you know, the five sexes or I seeing post articles and they're talking about sex being a spectrum. Whereas before they would talk about the gender spectrum, which I always took to mean the way people express themselves and their behaviors, which can be more or less I think described as a spectrum, at least a bimodal one to some degree. But then it was around that time they started speaking about sex being a spectrum. And when I asked them, are you talking about gender or sex? they would double down and say, no, we're talking about actual biological sex here. And just to be clear about terminology, we're using the term gender to describe the way we express ourselves, our inwardly felt feeling of who we are, stereotypes. Gender often is an affect, whereas when you refer to sex, you mean the biological way we are wired, male or female. Yeah, that's the distinction. One's purely behavioral, psychological. At least that's how I tend to define gender. The other is, I would argue, an objective way that you can classify sexually reproducing organisms as either male or female, or in some instances, perhaps they're somewhere uh, in between their intersex. They don't quite have developed unambiguously male or female genitalia. Now, you've written several articles for Quillette and the reason we're having this conversation is because of the personal experiences you described in your most recent one, and we'll get to that. But you wrote one a few months ago that was a real eye-opener for me, because I always knew that it really sounded wrong when people were telling me that, oh, there's no such thing as men and women, it's one big, mushy, gender-bred mashup. But you explain the science behind that, and it basically comes down, as I understand it, to what kind of gamete you produce sperm or egg. Am I oversimplifying it? Yeah, so I say there's two levels of the way you can look at it. When scientists talk about biological sex in general in sexually reproducing species, we classify the sort of males and females as a broad concept as individuals who are producing either sperm or ova. But when we kind of get down to actually classifying individual flesh and blood organisms, you can't really use that specific, you know, whether or not they're producing sperm or ova because adolescent males aren't producing sperm yet. Postmenopausal women aren't producing eggs at the time. And so you need to sort of have a different way that you classify these organisms. And the way you do that is basically by looking at how their reproductive systems are organized. Are they organized around the production of sperm, which they would have uh, testes, or are they organized around the production of you know, either past production, present or future production of creating ova. So that's sort of how we sex individuals, real flesh and blood individuals, whereas whether or not you produce sperm or ova, that's sort of the step back, what is biological sex as a theoretical concept. So would it be accurate to say that among humans, a male is someone whose biological systems are organized around the eventual production of sperm as a reproductive strategy, whereas for a female, her physical and psychological systems are organized in general in their architecture around the evolutionary strategy of producing ova. Is that accurate? 
Yeah, I wouldn't put psychological in there. I would just focus on the reproductive anatomy that they have. If they have, you know, their their gonads and maybe some of the secondary sex organs, seminal vesicles and those types of things. This is what I found interesting about your article, because people who say that there is a continuum of sex and there aren't just two sexes, they will focus on what you as a scientist call secondary sex characteristics, but which most of us probably don't think of as quote, secondary sex characteristics. From what I understand from what you've written, the penis, the vagina, the breasts, these are secondary sex characteristics, even though we don't think of them as secondary. Can you explain what a biologist means by secondary characteristics? So a secondary sex characteristic is basically those organs or those traits that will present themselves as you are going through puberty. So before puberty, when you're in the womb, different hormones that are activated by your genome are going to create whether or not you have a penis or a vagina or testes or ova. So those are determined before puberty by a different suite of hormones. And then when individuals go through puberty, their gonads activate, they're producing either if you're male or testosterone shoots up females, they're going to have more estrogen. And those are going to then lead to the development of what are called secondary sex characteristics. So if you're if you're a male, you're going to maybe get facial hair, you're going to have more broad shoulders, you know, you're going to become hairier generally, you're going to get stronger. Females are going to grow breasts. If you're a female, you're going to get different distribution of fat over your body. You're not going to have the rigid jaw that males would have. So these are all the secondary sexual characteristics that don't define your sex, but are highly linked to the sex that you are. For lay people, this leads to the confusion, which in turn leads to the casual idea of there being the spectrum of biological sex, where they'll say, well, some women have broad shoulders, or you also have people who have clinical intersex conditions. How does that complicate this discussion? So intersex conditions, they complicate it, but they really shouldn't. They're often used to complicate the situation by a lot of activists that use the existence of these edge case people. I'm of the opinion that some individuals, they may not be able to be you know, unambiguously classifiable as either male or female. If anything needs to be decided by a committee of doctors, then maybe there's some judgment going in there that's not going to be completely objective. And just to be clear, an intersex person, as I understand it, their genitals physically are in some intermediate state. Is that correct? It would depend on the specific intersex condition. There are some intersex conditions that are sex-specific, where they are either male or female, but then there are some that it's considered genuinely they're sort of ambiguous traits. Like they might have ovotestes, where they have their gonads are sort of a mixture of both, and they also have ambiguous genitalia. There are people who produce both eggs and sperm? There's never been an individual that's ever been recorded that produces both. There have been individuals that have both testicular and ovarian tissue, but if those individuals have ever been fertile, they've only ever been shown to produce one or the other, eggs or sperm. There have been no example of a, a, quote, true hermaphrodite in humans that can produce both, either simultaneously or at different times of their lives. But that's interesting because it does reinforce the idea that this is a binary. As much as it's a spectrum in the way we present ourselves, it's a binary in the sexually dimorphic way we exist as mammals. Is that ultimately what the conclusion is? Yeah, so there's an important distinction is when people like me say sex is a binary, we don't mean that every single individual that's alive can be unambiguously 
classified as male or female, you know, 100%. What we're saying essentially is that there are only two sexes. And if you have a discernible sex, it's either going to be male or female. Intersex is not its own sex. If there's no third gamete between sperm and ova that an intersex person reproduces. So biologically speaking, an individual is either going to be male or female or intersex. But again, intersex isn't considered a third sex. It's just maybe a neither or an undefined position between the two. It's time for a short message from Blinkist. If you're the type of person who reads Quillette and listens to the Quillette podcast, you also might be the sort of person who reads a lot of books. But like me, you probably never have enough time to read quite as many as you'd like. And that's where Blinkist comes in. Open the Blinkist app on your phone, tablet, or browser, and suddenly you're able to read or listen to expert 15-minute summaries of popular nonfiction books. For one low price, you get unlimited access to the entire Blinkist library. There are 12 million people using Blinkist. For some users, it's the soundtrack to their daily slog through traffic. Others read Blinkist on the subway. In my case, I listen to Blinkist when I walk my dog, which usually takes about 15 minutes. That's one whole book. Go through the Blinkist catalog and you'll find all sorts of big brain books, like Upheaval by Jared Diamond and Sapiens by Yuval Noel Harari. But they've also got those business books you see in airport swivel racks, not to mention the Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels, and of course, 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. In some cases, the Blinkist summary is just enough for me. Other times, I'm so interested that I go out and buy the book and read it cover to cover. Either way, thanks to Blinkist, I know which books deserve my time most. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Quillette. Try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Quillette to start your free seven-day trial at 25% off. And now, back to our podcast. Let's get to the meta issue, which is the subject of your most recent article, which is the experience you had when you started to talk about some of this stuff, which it sounds like it was around 2015 and thereafter. When you did start talking about this stuff publicly or perhaps on social media, did you imagine that you would receive support from others in your academic community much as you had received support when you pushed back against pseudoscience in the area of, for instance, creationism? So I imagined that people would at least realize what I was attempting to do, and that was engage in a good faith conversation about ideas. So I knew that people were a little more sensitive to this on the left and within the academy, and that I would probably receive some pushback. What I didn't expect, though, and something I didn't receive when I was criticizing creationism and intelligent design, I didn't expect to be called a bad person, be called a bigot and a transphobe when people tell me I'm I'm killing people literally by saying the things I'm saying. So there was definitely that major difference where it wasn't just an intellectual argument they were having. They were defending some sort of ideology to the bitter end. Whereas when I would argue with creationists, intelligent design people, you know, they would call me wrong and maybe they'd call me stupid sometimes, but they never called me a horrible person and never went beyond that to try to say that I shouldn't be getting jobs or something like that. So 
you were warned at one point, or maybe more than one point, didn't your supervisor say to you, like, hey, you got to stop talking about this stuff? Yeah, so I had talked to a lot of my mentors, and they were all very much on my side. They they agreed with my positions on things. And I went to them to get feedback because I had written a draft of my first article, which was The New Evolution Deniers. Um, and I sent them that, and they both... I remember their emails they sent me and they said, this is absolutely right. This is really great. It's powerfully written, but you can't publish this, at least not with your name on it. Like you, one of, one of my mentors said, publish it, you know, anonymously. The other one said, don't even publish it at all, because even if it's anonymous, someone's going to find out it was you somehow based on, you know, finding different things in the essay that can trace it to you somehow. And so they didn't even want me to put it out even, even anonymously. Um, but what stood out to me in their emails was the first half where they said how everything I said was completely correct and, and everything. And then it was only because of the backlash, they said I shouldn't do it, but I had sort of been brought up in the tradition of, you know, or at least idolized people like Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens is of the world who sort of, uh, would scoff at that. But of course, those people were lionized in the context of pushing back against conservative pieties. Whereas with you, it was the opposite. And again, to play devil's advocate here, some of this pseudoscience does come from good intentions where gender dysphoria is real. There are people who experience it as a psychological condition. And the argument is that, well, to palliate the gender dysphoria, you should treat them according to their preferred gender. Uh, Even if they're biologically male, you should treat them as female. And I think there are a lot of people, including me, who did very much go along with that because they thought it was humane and only stopped going along with it when it started leading to policy outcomes that hurt children and women and biological males started to be placed, for instance, in female prisons. And I don't need to remind listeners about all the controversies this has engendered, but When you describe these conversations you just had, was it still at the phase where maybe people didn't realize the troubling policy implications that this material would have if it were extrapolated credulously across all domains of policy? I think some people were aware and were hoping that it would go through all areas of policy, but I think there's even a bigger group of people who just kind of go along with what people are saying because they want to be good people or they see that as a position of high empathy and just sort of the next step that they think of the civil rights LGBT movement, they want to be seen as inclusive. And maybe they haven't thought through all of the negative effects or if they if they have to some degree, they don't think it's that big a deal. Like, so what if trans athletes are in women's sports and they're winning occasionally? You know, it's not the end of women's sports because they rarely win anyway. There's a lot of ways you can make it not seem very important or just sort of like uh, people are becoming hysterical over nothing. I think if you really pay attention to it, you can see why there's a lot of individuals that might be a little afraid about what's going on. And if we're just going to be removing biological sex as a way that we classify people in law and replace it with some innate inner sense of identity. I guess I'm curious. You talk about how you were inspired by Dawkins. You were inspired by Hitchens. But there are a lot of people who are inspired by those figures. I'm wondering why 
if you've done any soul searching, why you? Why did you make noise about this? I ask because, like you, I've been studying this area for a while now, and I notice that a lot of people who speak out, there, there are certain kinds of people who do it. Sometimes it's immigrants who come from dictatorial countries, and they recognize these dictatorial patterns of thought, and they have a special sensitivity to it. Or there are people from within those communities themselves, like for instance, transgender people will speak out against trans radicalism because they feel they have special license to do so. And in fact, they do, though that doesn't stop them from getting mobbed sometimes by activists. But you're, if I may say, you're just like this random, white, straight, from what I can tell, wasp from the Midwest. You don't have any intersectional markers that give you extra moral capital when you enter this fray? So why you and not the guy in the next office? That's a good question. I'm not exactly sure why I felt the need to just speak up other than I just sort of have always felt this urge to combat bad ideas whenever I see them. That was the case when I was arguing against creationism, intelligent design. I would just, you know, I I had a blog and I would just blast these ideas as much as I could. Uh, I would try to debunk things like ancient Chinese medicine just because I saw them being used for what I saw as bad ends. And, you know, to me, this is almost a sort of educational outreach on my side. You know, you don't just push forward these bad ideas in society without them having bad consequences, because at some point they're going to butt up against reality. And in the case of the sex denialism that I'm seeing, to me, it's much more dangerous than having creationism taught in a classroom or intelligent design. This is affecting real people in so many different areas of society. And then for me to feel that I should be afraid to say what seems so obvious, it just drove me nuts. I had self-censored for a long time while I was in grad school because I thought I'd have to do that to get a job. And then as I sort of looked into the future more, it's like, well, I'm now I'm applying for assistant professor jobs, and that could take several years. And so, okay, I'll self-censor for three or four more years until I get that. And then when I get a professor job, well, then I have to go for tenure and six years. So then there's another six years. So I was looking at over a decade of having to self-censor when it was already driving me insane, having to just remain quiet on things where I see these, you know, what I essentially see as civil rights issues that are not being addressed. And I just didn't want to be part of the problem of being quiet about it. So I know others feel the same way, but they don't speak up, but I just haven't been able to keep my mouth shut ever. So I have a, (laughs) I have a bad case of the same condition. Is everyone to some extent a hypocrite when it comes to science? And I ask because I worked for many years in conservative media and there were a lot of very rigorous minds around me. But when it came to, for instance, uh, global warming, Suddenly they'd start talking about sunspots and Al Gore and climate gate and all this stuff. And they would look for excuses to deny the science behind climate change. And then I worked at, at a progressive magazine where I agreed with everybody around me about climate science. But then they'd tell me there were 72 genders and they would talk about indigenous medicines that could do things that Western medicines couldn't. It just seemed Everybody I've met who has any kind of strong political ideology has a blind spot when it comes to one area of science. Do you think that's true? I think it's definitely true that we all have our blind spots. I wouldn't necessarily go and call it hypocrisy, what you initially said, because that maybe involves some degree of self-awareness. So we all definitely have biases in the science. If you're coming from a certain upbringing, you're going to see the world in certain ways. 
we're not all experts in every single field, so we might have wrong ideas on other fields. The thing that protects against those biases becoming endemic and just rampant throughout science is when we try to shut down discussion on these ideas. The main thing that I think we should be doing, which is you know, what the Heterodox Academy is trying to do, is bring in viewpoint diversity. You want to have other individuals who are coming from different points of view so they can cover for the blind spots in these other groups. You know, if you have an academy that's 99% super left-wing, yeah, they're all going to share the same blind spot to the degree where they're not even going to be able to know that there's a blind spot there. And there's no one who's even in their departments that can even point to a blind spot because <laughs> they don't exist there. As long as we have these multiple viewpoints and we don't take these discussions off the table, biases actually aren't a problem. They can actually be a source of insight to a very large degree. Let me ask you about the effect of communications technology on your experience, because Anyone who read your most recent article will know there was this moment when it wasn't just people around you who were warning you about the effect of you calling out gender nonsense. There was a troll who appeared on a message board, and this was a very critical message board for you. It was one of these boards where everybody in your field, this is the hub where they would look for and access academic jobs in your field. Anybody who had any kind of influence on your career had access to this board. And there was some troll, and I think you have a pretty good idea who it was, but I guess maybe not proof, who was saying, Colin Wright is a bigot, don't hire him. I forget the exact words. 20 or 30 years ago, this wouldn't have been possible. Because 20 or 30 years ago, to get a job, you know, maybe you'd hobnob at conferences or you'd send out your CV like in paper form. There wasn't one electronic forum where someone could go to contaminate your reputation with a single click of the mouse. Do you think that this communications technology, which has made it very easy to apply for jobs and network, maybe much easier than it used to be, has also made it just that much easier for ideologically motivated trolls to try and sully the reputation of someone like you? Yeah, and it's not even easier for trolls trying to ruin your reputation through various online means. But if you think about the way faculty was hired pre-social media, I mean, you would send in your CV, they looked at it, they liked your papers, you published a lot, you'd go and get interviewed. They couldn't check to see if there's a picture of you wearing a MAGA hat in any of your you know, photos with your family. They don't know about your politics necessarily. They just have your CV on you. And then you go and you take your interviews and there's sort of interview questions that are either illegal or just socially taboo. You're not going to ask someone how they voted because that's considered not relevant to a microbiologist. You know, it doesn't matter what you believe. And so this lack of total information about people meant that people were getting hired who might be politically at odds with the majority of their department or something like that, where you'd have more diversity because of the little information that you knew. Fast forward to now, we have the situation where People are scouring your social media. You're looking at your Twitter. They're looking at your Facebook if it's public. Any public information that you have about yourself, if they can see you wearing a MAGA hat, you know, if you happen to be conservative and of that mentality. And they might not think that they're going to discriminate against you based on those traits, but they almost certainly are going to be. They're, if they're more progressive. They're not going to want to have someone in their department who has views that are, they think, extremely at odds with theirs. And so you have sort of this process, I think, that's sort of ratcheting up the proportion of like-minded individuals in the academy. And then you also have, as what you said, is 
these multiple avenues now through social media to ruin reputations, to make it so those people who are on search committees are more likely to stumble across information about you, whether it's real or whether it's just some troll putting it out there on some message board. And then there's the more generic transformation of universities where I think a lot of academics, even those without any ideological axe to grind, they just complain that there is much stricter oversight by MBA types, HR officials, communications officials. You describe an episode where there was somebody at a small college that was impressed with your credentials and said, look, in a perfect world, I would hire you, but I know that based on your social media feed or on some of the op-eds you've written, I forget which, the HR department isn't going to allow us to go through with this. I'm ignorant about office politics and academia, but 20 or 30 years ago, if a biology department was hiring a professor, did the HR office, assuming there was an open spot, did the HR office have a veto on who they could hire? No, this is completely new. So HR had always been, if anything were to arise that was an actual problem among their current faculty, then you bring in HR to moderate and see what's going on there. But now there's this trend to have them in the first step of the interview process where you need to pass approval by the HR. In some cases, they're the ones who are looking over your diversity statements. And among those, if you pass that first hurdle, you then get handed off to the department and they can choose among those curated few. The big problem is the HR is often, as you say, the MBA people, they're often more skewed politically than the faculty. They're just risk averse, right? It's probably a combination of that too. Yeah, they're extremely risk averse and they're more likely skewed. Because the university that reached out to me, I won't say which one, but it was a private conservative university But their HR department was not nearly as conservative as their faculty was. And so that was part of the issue there, too. I thought that was such a weird subplot in your piece, because I used to be a TA when I was doing my graduate studies in engineering. And the HR department at the university, it's like that was where you went to get your parking pass and maybe complain that you didn't get vacation pay. Like the idea that they were going to say, yeah, you know, we don't need another hydrometallurgical engineer because, you know, <laughs> his views on pyrometallurgy are at odds with the university's brand or something like that would have been seen as bizarre. And it sounds like a huge source of frustration. And yet at the same time, the people who are truly toxic in a university system, and you identify at least one in your piece, sounds like they don't even do any academic work. All they do is troll the campus for heretics to try and get fired. It sounds like HR is powerless to get rid of those people. And some of these people are quite junior. It sounds like the people who are controlling the ideological atmosphere at these places, from what I can tell, it's not like they're the leading luminaries in their field. In some cases, it sounds like they're mediocrities who just have decided that they're going to make it their life's work to purify, as they see it, the ideological component of their department. Is that the case? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if I could comment too much on you know the, the qualifications of all the individuals who are being those online trolls. There are some that I know who don't seem to be very productive, but I know some that are still scientifically pretty productive. They just don't have any fear whatsoever that HR is going to come for them just because they happen to be towing that orthodox line. So they basically can say what they want. They can accuse their own in the case of Michigan State University with Kevin Bird and Stephen Sue, 
Yeah, Stephen Sue. He was the vice president of research until he stepped out. Yeah, you can make these baseless claims of, you know, racism or sexism or whatever it was to a a high up faculty member who's on all estimates and everything I've seen has shown no evidence of these claims. And you basically, there's nothing to fear for these individuals making these claims, but it resulted in Stephen Sue him getting demoted or at least losing his position. So there's just unequal footing. There's just all condemnation for one group, whether or not it's true. And, you know, you don't get any punishment for making false accusations. I always like to give credit where it's due when it comes to administrations that don't give in to the mob. And one interesting thing in your most recent article, you talk about how it was Penn State, I think, where you worked. Is that right? Yeah. At Penn State, where you, if I remember correctly, you had a postdoctoral fellowship in your field in biology. They did not try to fire you. And in fact, you had an opportunity to keep working there. I don't know if you know what was behind the black box there, but were there discussions among the administration or did they make an affirmative decision to stand up for free speech? My interaction with Penn State was completely minimal throughout the entire debacle I was going through, the whole controversy. They basically said absolutely nothing to me, which was fine, as long as they let me do what I want to do. They don't need to say they support or don't support me as long as they're not censoring me in any way. And they didn't. So when I published my Wall Street Journal piece, The Dangerous Denial of Sex, I didn't receive any complaints from my actual HR It was only other people who forwarded me some of their emails that had notified me that HR was contacted by students that were claiming to feel, you know, unsafe with me on campus. And they accused me of attacking non-binary and trans identities. But the HR never came to me and said that these are formal complaints. They never graduated from complaints to anything on my record or something like that. So that was fine because I originally had a two-year fellowship, but with the option of extending a third based on performance. And they had offered to extend my contract to a third year. It's not clear to me whether they even knew I was going through an entire ordeal and there was a controversy around me or whether or not there was and they were fine with that. So I'm not sure how much information they had either way. All I know is that if they knew, they didn't care. So you made the decision to leave academia and join the highly profitable and lucrative world of, <laughs> of, of online opinion journalism. So it's been a couple of months now since you joined Quillette. We're colleagues now. And I didn't know you when you were an academic, but I get the sense that your mood has lightened. Could you talk a little bit about the cultural differences between being a journalist, especially, I guess, at a place like Quillette, which is what you know, and the world of academia in terms of how it affects the way you go about your professional life? I mean, they couldn't be more different. So uh, something maybe I didn't even realize when I was in academia is the stress and anxiety that was just a constant in your environment, not just because of the pressure to publish and always be getting new data and try to find funding. Like, you know, that's a constant for everyone who's in academia. But the additional constant of me knowing that I'm going to keep writing about these opinions that I have regardless as either, you know, as a a side project to my academic work and knowing that all of my collaborators, almost all of them anyway, have publicly or privately denounced me one way or the other, knowing that students are going to continue to make claims about me and them feeling unsafe on campus. And, well, how's this going to look when I try to get jobs, when I try to go up for tenure? And all of these factors were constantly 
on my mind and adding more stress on top of the already intense environment of, you know, the publish and perish environment in academia. Working for Quillette now or just leaving academia, all that has just sort of left my body, at least that sort of stress that I had before. I didn't even know it was there, but it was. And so, yeah, it's been pretty revelatory. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on board. And thanks so much for writing your piece and for taking the time to talk about it on the Quillette podcast. For those interested in reading Colin Wright's latest piece, it's called Think Cancel Culture Doesn't Exist, My Own Lived Experience Says Otherwise. Colin, thanks again, and I'll see you on our Slack channel. Thank you so much. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.